Ezekiel chapter 21 tonight. It's been really cool just uh, seeing how the Lord is using this study in Ezekiel um, to meet us right where we're at. Um, Isn't it amazing, you know, how um, the Lord speaks to us in his word as we go through the Bible, just uh, the things that are going on. And and, um, I feel in some ways like I'm doing an inadequate job connecting the dots. Uh, Have you ever had something you sense in your heart the Lord is showing you, but you have a hard time articulating it? Um, Have you ever had that? You know, where you're like, man, I feel like I am saying it, but it's not, it's just not maybe connecting the way it needs to or should, uh, because, um, man, the Lord has stirred my heart on this, and and it really has to do with the, the parallel of the people of Ezekiel's time and the exact same things that we're doing today in modern times. People haven't changed. Um, probably one of the, the, the comments I hear from, you know, mostly non-believers, but sometimes you'll hear this from a believer, oh, the Bible's just an old book of ancient people who had nothing to do with us, old stories, you know, and, and people that dismiss the Bible is like, eh, you know, what does it have to do with us? Who can relate to people 3,000 years ago or whatever? And I, and I think, man, what book are you reading? Uh, that, maybe that's the Koran. Uh, maybe you should make sure you got the Bible in your hand because uh, the Bible, man nails us down to the T, you know, minus the, uh, you know, the ancientisms, but you don't even need those things, you know, like uh, there's perfect correlations of, of what we're dealing with today. And I would say even the issues uh, that are current to 2021, if you want to talk about critical race theory or uh, Black Lives Matter or, uh, you know, the, the kind of the socialism, you know, and uh, social justice that, uh, that we're trying to see, you know, happen in America. And it's an interesting thing because um, really a lot of times the people of Israel, they were doing what they were doing under the guise of it being really good. What they were doing was good. When they would worship Moloch, they thought that was good. Man, it's such a brave thing for a mother to take her baby and sizzle it on the arms of a, of a pagan deity. Uh, we think that it's just like, where's, you know, where's the witch's broom or the pitchfork, you know, and, um, you know, these people were nuts. And, and they were, but you have to understand, in their culture, it was really cool. It was the hip thing to do. Man, you have a baby, and then you come to the temple of Moloch, and you give it to Moloch and let it die there on the arms. And it was, that was the thing. And it would have to do with who was hip and prosperous and you know, who was open-minded. And, uh, and yet it was just the epitome of evil. And in the same way today, you know, whether we wanna connect the dots, that's not even hard to do uh, with abortion and the, you know, the horrible, I think that's gonna go down as the worst thing. If the Lord should tarry, um, I think we're gonna, you know how, you know how we, our, our nation hates our history of slavery? And we should. Slavery was a horrible part of our history, and it was, it was you know, definitely a, a black, um, you know, uh, mark on our, our society and history. And, and you know, for, the, you know, for the, our culture, you know, we're trying to even deal with it today, and, and people are wrestling with, you know, reparations and guilt and white fragility and, and, and white privilege, and is that linked to, you know, even though a lot of our, found, our, our you know, ancestors fought in the Civil War for, you know, a, a, you know for freedom. And yet, it's, it's, we don't know what to do with that. It's such a horrible thing in our history. We just, it's horrible. We don't know what to do with it. Um, I think that if the Lord tarries, which I don't think he will, but if he does, I think abortion's going to go down worse than slavery. 
because it is. Um, you know, it's one thing to enslave a bunch of people, that's horrible enough. But to murder 61 million babies, it's, it's unthinkable when you really do the math and think about it. 61 million since Roe versus Wade, um, nearly approaching 62 million here. And you know, it's amazing how the people love to say, well, you know, the mother has a right to speak up and her power over her own body. But what about the baby? You know, like there, there's a, just such a lack of logic. Um, the logic is, is painful. Um, nobody that I've ever heard um, speak out pro-choice, all the pro-choice people as they like to call it, not one of the pro-choices, you know, people that I hear were aborted, not one of them. <laughs> Think about that for a second. Not one pro-choice person was aborted and they didn't have a choice uh, in the matter, but uh, that's interesting to me. It's just stupid, the whole thing's ridiculous. And, and like when you look at medical science and, and, and all that, you think it's just ridiculous that we go into the, the womb and do surgery on a baby in its first trimester and save its life. And we think, oh, we've saved that precious life. And then that same doctor can go into the next room over in, uh, in some states, you know, at the very end of the birth and uh, go in there and dismember a baby and suck it out in the most horrible, did you guys see that doctor who had done something like 1,700 abortions or something and he was in front of Congress explaining, he even brought his tools with him and he just calmly in very medical terms said, here's what we did and, here, and, and he was explaining and you could hear people gasping in, the, in Congress, you know, because like, it was so, you know, it's one of those things we don't wanna talk about but this doctor just brought his tools and here's what they do, you chop this and you suck this out and, you, and everybody's just, because <gasps> it was just, it was us having to face our sins. It's interesting, you know, some of these newer things that we're doing culturally. Um, uh, it's, it's really interesting. It was Norm Chomsky who said this. He said, if you want to start a revolution, come up with a slogan that nobody can reject. So Black Lives Matter, who's going to reject that? Of course, Black Lives Matter. Every, you'd be a weirdo to say that that's not true. Um, and there are, you know, uh, I'm sure there's some crazy white supremacist somewhere who believes that black lives don't matter. And I know that there is a history in our nation that has that, but, but you know, you have to have a slogan like that to push a whole other agenda of Marxism and anti-family, you know, uh, destructing the nuclear family, uh, Marxism, and um, all kinds of other political agendas, you know, nice slogan. Even social justice. Social justice is an interesting thing because the word I heard it, I think it was John MacArthur said, you know, the word justice doesn't need an adjective, and it's really true. Um, but you put the nice little word social justice on there, and it's kind of an interesting thing. Who would reject that? Everybody wants social justice, of course. Who would reject that? But, you know, um, all that to say is, is there's all kinds of agendas, and sadly, uh, without really vetting the cause, people have jumped on board and fallen for these agendas, including the church people that should have known better. You see, you say, Brett, I don't, I don't get the correlation. Do you understand the people of Jerusalem, of all the people that should have known better, they were the ones, the Jews, God's chosen people. By that time, they had the law given to them by Moses. They had the law of God, they had the law of Moses, they had the Ten Commandments. And yet, with, with the, the word in their hands, if you would, they just started sliding into the world and doing worldly, grotesque stuff. One of the things that 
our culture is very big on is, you know, it's not my fault and I'm a victim. Uh, Black Lives Matter, uh, social injustice, critical race theory, very much all those things hinge on it's not my fault, it's somebody else who's the oppressor who's oppressing me. And I'm the victim and there's the oppressors. And the problem is it's this worldview that says basically I'm the way I am, um, so just deal with it. Um, but there's, there's no wrongdoing of the person individually. It's, it's, a, it's a, you know, social, uh, you know, systemic sort of problem that's made me or put me in the position that I am. The problem with that is the Bible knows nothing of that. Even last week, we saw in Ezekiel chapter 18 that the soul that sins, it will die. So the, the danger of this worldview that every, it's everybody else, the reason I'm the way I am is, you know, is that's not my fault. It's because of everybody else. The problem with that is you won't be able to say that in front of God. The day you stand before God, God will look at you and say, what did you do with what I gave you? And, and you won't be able to say, yeah, but, but those people, and they did that. No, nope. the, the Lord will, according to Ezekiel 18, the soul that sins, it shall die. Don't say sour grapes, you know, it's my parents' fault or, or whatever. Uh, remember that chapter? Uh, the Bible says, nope, you're gonna have to own it. The soul that sins, it will die. You will have to stand before God someday. And that's what I'm most concerned about socialism and Black Lives Matter and critical race theory and social justice as it's called. Um, I, I'm concerned that the, that, that the society that we live in, which is really the world now, we're so connected that we don't get it. I think it's for that reason. We have chapters and verses like we have tonight. I hope you brought your kids to Sunday school tonight because this is going to be uh, rated R, maybe rated X, really. It's pretty bad. So uh, now, we won't fault you if you get up and bring Junior to the class. If you've got a little kid in here, it's pretty brutal. These are some of the worst chapters of the Bible we're about to read. Are you ready? <laughs> like, bring it on. We, you, wait, <laughs> you don't know what you're talking You didn't read ahead, I can tell. Um, <laughs> all right. But some people would say what we're about to read is just more Ezekiel nonsense. You know, more Ezekiel, this diatribe against the, you know, the Jews and their rebellion. And, and you, know, it, you know, some people look at this book and say, well, it's just another chapter about the Jews were naughty and God's going to crush them. And he's going to use the Assyrians, he's going to use the Babylonians, and, um, and they're going to, some, most people are going to die, some are going to cap, cap, captivity. And, and you, at a real high level, you can say, yeah, that, that's, that's what Ezekiel's about. But it's about so much more, and, and um, people that don't read their Bible realizing it's multifaceted and multi-leveled, I can see why they say the Bible's boring. <laughs> but when you look at the layer upon layer, it's like peeling an onion, layer upon layer, the Bible starts to come to life, and it's powerful. It's not just a bunch of information. That's what I'm concerned about, is we've become a culture of information. Did you know that one million 111,111 times 1,111,111. Did you know if you multiply those two numbers together, you know what the the answer is? It's, I can't really say the number the way you're supposed to say it, but if you write it out, it's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Who would have known? Did you know that the Speaker of the House in England, in London, the Speaker of the House doesn't get to speak? 
true. Did you know that when somebody says, man, we really gave them the whole nine yards, do you know where that came from? World War II, the 50 caliber machine gun that, that they had that fed these, the belt with the, with the rounds of the 50 cal, as it turns out, it was 27 feet long. And it was nine yards long, the belt. So they had to bring these, you know, this box and hook it up and, and it, was, it, was, it was nine yards of 50 caliber rounds. And if you shot that whole thing, you gave them the whole nine yards. Did you know that? Did you know that more people are killed annually by donkeys than are in, in air crashes from planes? It's true. <laughs> Donkey deaths. <laughs> Did you know that Mel Blanc, who was the voice of Bugs Bunny, was allergic to carrots? Brett, what are you doing, man? It's time for a Bible study. Uh, well, it, my point is this, useless information. We are so into that in this world. Useless information, it's all over the internet, it's all over social media, and we just, oh, that's, that's interesting, wow, ooh. and we get all into, and yet, then we got the book of Ezekiel right before us that's living and powerful, God's holy word to humanity. And a lot of people, and I'm preaching to the choir tonight because y'all are here with us studying the Bible, but a lot of people are like, what? You're gonna, you're gonna read the book of Ezekiel in chapter 23? Ooh. But you have to understand these words are powerful words and they're here for us to remember just the truth. You know, um, Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. You know, if you think the Bible were just nothing more than ancient trivia, then you would just go away and think, yeah, okay, whatever. But when you realize this is God's word for us today, then you have to search it and say, Lord, what does this mean for us? That's our, that's our goal tonight. Say, what does this mean for you and me? So let's take a look. Chapter 21, we're gonna see Ezekiel give us another little story lesson that is a story about a sword. If you've been with us, Ezekiel does pantomime and he does little drama acts and plays and parables and he's speaking to them in creative ways. Well, now he's gonna make a themed sort of uh, sermon about the sword. And you might be tempted to think, well, this is the sword of the spirit, the word of God, which you can make that argument because the sword of the spirit is, is um, quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, but as the word of God is the sword, it also is that which judges. Do you understand that the word is the indictment against humanity? So that when a person stands before God, before the throne, and they'll say, it was because they treated me bad, the word is gonna be, okay, well, let's consult the word, which is the indictment, and the word says no. See, the word is the sword that destroys even. We, as Christians, we love the Word of God as just this, our, the book that God has given us, His love letter to us, and it is. But you also understand this is an indictment against humanity as well if you rebel against it. And so this, picture this sword that, that Ezekiel's gonna employ and talk about, and it's gonna be a picture of judgment and wrath. Let's take a look. Number one, verses one through uh, seven, is the sword drawn, drawn right out of its sheath. Here we go. Verse one, and the word of the Lord came unto me saying, son of man, set thy face toward Jerusalem and drop thy word toward the holy places and prophesy against the land of Israel and say unto the land of Israel, thus saith the Lord, behold, I am against thee and will draw forth my sword out of his sheath and will cut off from thee the righteous and the wicked. 
seeing then that I will cut off from the righteous and the wicked. Therefore shall my sword go forth out of its sheath against all flesh from the south to the north, that all flesh may know that I, the Lord, have drawn forth my sword out of its sheath. It shall not return any more. Sigh, therefore, thou son of man, with the breaking of thy loins, and with bitterness sigh before their eyes. And it shall be when they say unto thee, Wherefore sighest thou, thou? Thou shalt answer for the tidings, because it cometh, and every heart shall melt, and all hands shall be feeble, and every spirit shall faint, and all knees shall be weak as water. Behold, it com cometh, and shall be brought to pass, saith the Lord God. Ezekiel is told by the Lord, I'm going to draw my sword. Does this sound intimidating? Picture God going, like, this is intimidating. Um, do you remember when Christ comes, uh, the second coming of Christ? Very different than the first coming. He's coming on a white horse, but what's coming out of his mouth? A sword. It's the sword that indicts. It's the judgment against the world. In the small local application here, this is the word indicting these people because they should have known better. They had the sword, but now the sword's dropping. It's coming out of the sheath. And, and so how, how is Ezekiel supposed to represent this to the people? He's supposed to walk around now going, <sighs> people are going, what's up with him? <sighs> sigh and sigh again. Hey, Ezekiel, uh, why are you sighing? Because the sword's coming down. The knees are gonna, it's like if you hack someone and kill them, their knees just go weak and their body drops. That's the imagery here. And Ezekiel's going, it's heavy. It's a very, very heavy word. The sword drawn, number one. But then we see the sword sharpened in verses eight through 17. It says in verse eight, and the word of the Lord came unto me saying, son of man, prophesy and say, thus saith the Lord, say, a sword, a sword is sharpened and also furbished. It is sharpened to make a sore slaughter. It is furbished that it may glitter. Should we then make mirth? Um, it uh, contendeth the rod of my son as every tree. And he that giveth it to be furbished, that it may be handled, this sword is sharpened and is furbished to give it into the hand of the slayer. Cry and howl, son of man, for it shall be upon my people. It shall be upon all the princes of, the, of Israel. Terrors by reason of the sword shall be upon my people. Smite therefore upon thy thigh, because it is a trial. And what if the sword contemn even the rod? It shall be no more, saith the Lord God. Thou therefore, son of man, prophesy and smite thine hands together, and let the sword be doubled the third time, the sword of the slain. It is the sword of the great men that are slain, which entereth into their privy chambers. I have set the point of the sword against all their gates, that their heart may faint and their ruins be multiplied. Ah, oh, it is made bright. It is wrapped up for the slaughter. Go thee one way or the other, either on the right hand or on the left, whithersoever thy face is set, I will also smite my hands together and will I cause my fury to rest. I, the Lord, have said it. There's dramatic things going on. So the first part, the sword drawn, 
Ezekiel is supposed to go around sighing. Now that the sword is sharpened and glistening, uh, brightly uh, ready to go, razor's edge, that if somebody even raises a rod, it says here, the rod would just be sliced through because the sword is so sharp. Um, and so what he's supposed to do? He's supposed to cry out now. Cry, verse 12, and howl. So he goes from sighing to crying and howling because this sword is sharp and ready to roll, ready to fall on Jerusalem. Um, he says in verse 15, I have set the point of the sword against all their gates. So you and I know what this point of the sword is, and I hope they would get the point, but they don't. The point is the Babylonians are coming, and the point of their sword is at the very gate of Jerusalem there, the gates, I should say, of Jerusalem. So this is all very intimidating language, and this is Ezekiel trying to put it on as heavy, heavy as he can, and the Lord's once again trying to warn the people of what's coming down. But you've got, number one, the sword drawn, number two, the sword sharpened, number three, the sword directed toward Jerusalem. It's verse 18. It says in verse 18, the word of the Lord came unto me again saying, also thou son of man, appoint thee two ways that the sword of the king of Babylon may come, both twain shall come forth out of one land. And choose thou a place, choose it at the head of the way to the city. Appoint a way that the sword may come to Rabbah uh, of the Ammonites and to Judah in Jerusalem, the defense. For the king of Babylon stood at the parting of the way, at the head of the two ways, to use divination or fortune telling. He made his arrows bright, he consulted with images, and he looked in the liver. This is a form of idolatry, by the way. Um, and the images there, the word is probably teraphim, which is an interesting uh, imagery uh, that this, you know, um, this is this king of Babylon's doing, but he's, he's di divining or he's fortune telling. He's doing the heebie-jeebie stuff to get, you know, his directions about what to do. And that's what it means. To look at the liver means to open up and fillet an animal open and uh, gut the animal and uh, sacrifice it and what have you. So this is, this is what the Babylonians are doing. Verse 22, at his right hand was the divination for Jerusalem to appoint captains to open the mouth in the slaughter, to lift up the voice with shouting, to appoint battering rams against the gates, to cast a mount and to build a fort. And it shall be unto them as a false divination in their sight, to them that have sworn oaths. But he will call to remembrance the iniquity that they may be taken. Therefore, because uh, therefore, thus saith the Lord God, because you have made your iniquity to be remembered in that your transgressions are discovered so that all your doings, your sins do appear. Because I say that you are come to remembrance, you shall be taken with the hand. And thou profane, wicked prince of Israel, whose day is come when iniquity shall have end, thus saith the Lord God, remove the diadem and take off the crown this shall not be the same. Exalt him that is low and abase him that is high. I will overturn, overturn, overturn it. And it shall be no more until he come whose right it is, and I will give it to him. He's talking here to the last king of Jerusalem. We know him to be Zedekiah. Take off your crown, Zedekiah, and I'm gonna not give it to another until one is worthy to take it. Who was the last king there of Israel? Zedekiah. Who's the next king that's gonna be worthy? Anybody? Jesus. 
Jesus is the one who's gonna be the rightful heir to the throne and he's the only one worthy. And it's been a long time since a king has really ruled from Jerusalem on the throne. When that happens, that's called the millennial kingdom. And that's what's being referred to in verse 27. Until he whose right it is, and I will give it to him. Jesus, that's Jesus. So verse 25 is about Zedekiah, the king who's losing the throne. But there's a, there's a bit of language here that's very common to the Bible, but I need to point it out because this is so much human nature. Verse 24, um, their transgressions are gonna be remembered and their transgressions are gonna be uh, discovered. And it says there in the middle of verse 24, so that in all your doings, your sins do appear. That's a good thing to remember because somehow these people were convinced that their sins would not come back to haunt them, that their sins somehow would be forgotten. Um, and that they were somehow pulling it off. That's the, the dumb part of us as human nature goes. We think that we're pulling it off, but the Bible says, be sure of this, your sin will find you out. You always get nailed by sin, always. And if you think you're pulling it off today, you're not gonna always pull it off. You, it will catch up to you one way or another. I know that sounds very bleak, but um, that's, that's the desperate situation of humanity. We're in a horrible situation because your sin will find you out. Not God will find you out. He knew about it all along. But your sin will find you out. In other words, your sin will catch up to you. And that's what's really being said here. The Jews for hundreds of years now have been partying down in Jerusalem, you know, doing their religious things on the Temple Mount, but also doing their pagan things. On the same day, they would sacrifice a baby to Moloch. The Bible's going to tell us in the next chapter that then they would go and worship at the temple, worship Jehovah. And they were just so comfortable with their sinfulness. And the Lord says this, man, so that all your doings, your sins are gonna appear, and I'm, I see it all. The Lord says, I'm gonna remember all this stuff. That's why I love the grace and the mercy of God, because when you confess your sin, when you repent of your sin, he takes your sin and forgets them. He remembers your sins no more, the Bible says. Man, I love that part of God's nature. Uh, remember, that's something you can't do. You can't forget stuff. That, don't you wish you could forget things? Why is it that your brain forgets the things you need to remember and you remember the things you wish to forget? That's just our brain. Oh Lord, why did you do that? But the Lord's quite the opposite. Um, the Lord, he can remember what he wants to remember, but he can forget what he wants to forget. And good news, the repentant sinner, if, if that person goes to the Lord and says, oh Lord, blot out my sins and remember them no more, the Lord is faithful to do that. <laughs> the problem is with the Jews here, there's no repentance. They're still doing their sins, thinking that God doesn't see it, or at least maybe he's apathetic about it. That's the mistake they made, and people are making the same mistake today. They're still just going off in their sin, thinking that, hey, look, nothing's happening. Nobody knows. I alone am the person who knows about my sin. But God sees it, and it will catch up to you. Um, I've got that verse marked in my Bible, so that all your doings, your sins do appear. That's a true statement. I've seen it uh, practically, and I know it spiritually to be true. Uh, how many times does a person think they've pulled it off and then somewhere along the way, it's all exposed? Well, you've got the sword drawn, the sword sharpened, you got the sword directed toward Jerusalem, but interesting, now the sword's gonna be directed toward Ammon. Remember the Ammonites? They were, during this time, they were the ones who came during Jeremiah's time, around this time, uh, and was messing, they were messing around with the Jews in Jerusalem. 
Um, remember that, that little team of soldiers that came and faked like they were friends uh, of Zedekiah and everybody, but actually they weren't. They, they came and slaughtered a bunch of Jews. If you remember that part of the story, um, this is kind of what we're talking about here. Verse 28, and thou son of man prophesy and say, thus the, uh, saith the Lord God concerning the Ammonites and concerning their reproach, even say thou the sword, the sword is drawn for the slaughter, it is furbished to consume because of the uh, glittering. Whilst they see vanity unto thee, whilst they divine a lie unto thee, to bring thee upon the necks of them that are slain of the wicked, whose day is come when their iniquity shall have an end. Um, isn't that interesting that um, um, their iniquity has an end? The Bible says that. There's a day where iniquity has an end. I think that's either the most comforting word or the most horrifying word, depending on what your perspective is. So verse 30, shall I cause it to return into its, his sheath? Will I put away my sword, is he, he's saying? I will judge thee in the place where thou wast created in the land of thy nativity, and I will pour out mine indignation upon thee. I will blow against thee in the fire of my wrath and deliver thee into the hand of the brutish men and the uh, skillful to destroy. Thou shalt be for fuel to the fire. Thy blood shall be in the midst of the land Thou shalt be no more remembered, for I, the Lord, have spoken it. Um, so the Ammonites are going to get busted for their horrible treatment of the remnant of the Jews that were left there uh, in Jerusalem, if you remember that part of the story when we were in Jeremiah. Well, chapter 22 now um, speaks more of judgment, uh, that the city of Jerusalem was headed for judgment. And um, and he's gonna sort of help define. Now, again, we've been covering this. This is why I mentioned so much about this at the beginning of our study is this is where people go, oh, more judgment, more definitive judgment about the Jews. This is, you know, painful how much judgment we're talking about. But this is judgment that God, he's not changed. He's still the judge. So we need to make sure that we're on the right side of the judge. So keep that in mind as we read this. But the first part of this chapter, if you like to break up chapters and sections, verses 1 through 16 is speaking of the cause of judgment. The cause of judgment. Verse 1. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Now thou son of man, wilt thou judge? Wilt thou judge the bloody city? Yea, thou shalt show her all her abominations. Remember, one of the things you kind of have to picture with Ezekiel, um, we see him as a prophet. We know he was a priest and he was headed for the priesthood, but under captivity, now he's working as a prophet. But, but you almost have to, you know, shift gears a little bit because throughout the book of Ezekiel, and we, we lose it a little bit in the English translation, but the image is also that Ezekiel is almost like a courtroom judge. Um, he's, he's actually, it's like a judicial sort of situation where, where Ezekiel's sort of indicting these people. There, there's legal terms being used, speaking about how Ezekiel is kind of, you know, judging these people, or maybe like an attorney, a prosecuting attorney, and making his case against the Jewish people. You, you got to picture that, and, and especially in this chapter, Ezekiel sort of takes on that litigation <coughs> kind of mode. So that's what it says there in verse 1 and 2. Verse 3, then say thou, thus saith the Lord God, the city of sh uh, that uh, sheddeth blood in the midst of it, that her time may come and maketh idols against herself to defile herself. Thou art become guilty in thy blood that thou hast shed. 
and hast defiled thyself in thine idols which thou hast made. And thou hast caused thy days to draw near, and art come even unto thy years. Therefore have I made thee a reproach unto the heathen, and a mocking to all the countries, those that bear, uh, par- pardon me, those that be near, and those that be far from thee shall mock thee, which art infamous and much vexed. Um, interesting, in verse two it says, uh, son of man, wilt thou judge, wilt thou judge a bloody city? Your, your margin says city of bloods. What does that mean? City of bloods, plural, bloods. Um, it's a word that is hard to translate, and, and that's why we don't use a word. We don't say that's the city of bloods, unless you're talking about gangs in LA, the bloods and the crypts or whatever. But, uh, but uh, it doesn't work in our ver- vernacular. The city that sheds blood, and, and it means that it's just bloodletting upon bloodletting upon bloodletting. That's why it's the, the word bloods over and over and over again. It's, it's the shedding of blood over and over and over again. That's the idea here. And then um, the Lord says, that because you're that city that sheds blood, um, you know, you, it says you, you've defiled yourself. You've, you've bloodied the whole city, and now you're defiled or, or, or you know, filthy. Um, now, then there's something here that, that sort of answers a question. Do you remember when I asked the question, like at a prophecy update, when I say, why is the whole world becoming more and more anti-Semitic? Why does the world hate the Jews? And it's really hard to figure it out. Like, there's not a lot of great reasons why people should hate the Jews as they do. And they've hated them for centuries, millennia. The Jewish people, people are always on the chopping block um, of society. Uh, and, and people treat the Jews bad. Now, anti-Semitism, if you, if you missed the last couple prophecy updates, I've talked about how uh, hatred for the Jews is on the rise, especially in the United States, sad to say. But this verse that we just read in verse five answers the little bit of the question of why that would be all the way back from Ezekiel's time. Because of their utter rebellion against God in Ezekiel's time and even to the present day, It says here in verse five, those that be near and those that be far from thee shall mock thee, which art infamous, or better word maybe notorious, um, and much vexed. That's that's why there's anti-Semitism is because in a sense, because of their rejection of God in the Old Testament, there is a, a bit of a a hatred that is sort of just on them. It's almost like there's a curse upon the Jews. Do you remember in Fiddle on the Roof, you know, the, the, what was his name, Tevye? He's like, why don't you choose somebody else for a while or whatever, you know, it's like, come on, you're, we're the chosen people, stop choosing us, choose somebody else. Um, but being the chosen people, as they rejected God, the world has largely rejected them. And, and we're seeing that even to this day, and there's no good reason why, other than you can see that they're in kind of a cursed state. Now, don't forget, even though they've blown it, as have we, um, God still has a plan for the Jews, a plan of mer- uh, mercy, a plan of forgiveness, and a plan of salvation. Romans eleven twenty five. all of Israel is gonna be saved one day. So don't make the mistake of a lot of the, you know, churches around the world uh, that say God's done with the Jews and the church has replaced Israel. That's hogwash, don't believe that. But it is true, the Jewish people largely are cursed today and it's really hard to watch. Um, and, and instead of just saying those Jews, we should, we should be thankful because we're, we're sinners just as much as the Jews are. 
We deserve the same kind of curse, really. Um, But praise the Lord, we live in an age of grace where we're saved by Christ who died on the cross. And if a Jew wants to accept Christ today, they can. Largely, they don't. But they can, just like you and me. Uh, but, th- but that's a whole other story. This is really where that, I think, anti-Semitism, you might even say is kind of like the birthplace of anti-Semitism is uh, Ezekiel 22, 5, where they become a vexed, notorious, mocked people. That's really sad. Verse 6, Behold, the princes of Israel, everyone were in, uh, in thee to their power to shed blood. In thee, uh, or in Jerusalem, have they set light by father and mother? Um, they didn't listen to their parents, is, is, is what that's actually saying. In, in the midst of thee, um, they have dealt by oppression with the stranger. In thee, Jerusalem, they have vexed the fatherless and the widow. Thou hast despised mine holy things and hast profaned my Sabbaths. Uh, in thee are men that carry tales to shed blood. And in thee, They eat upon the mountains in the midst of thee, and they commit lewdness. Some of this we don't recognize. If you're you're kind of new to the Bible, there's some stuff here. You're like, so what? They ate their hot dogs up on the mountaintops. What's wrong with that? So they went for a hike and had some lunch. Um, You got to understand, when they go to the high places and they're eating food, they're eating meat that was sacrificed to idols in the high places. Uh, Picture, you know, uh, pagan altars on the mountaintops where they'd go and worship and do weird heebie-jeebie witchcraft type paganism, and they'd eat the food that they were sacrificing to these gods. That's that's what's going on. They they weren't just going for a hike. Um, But verse 9 tells tells us they were carrying tales, (coughs) excuse me, or slanders, lies, that caused people to shed blood. I hope you understand that your words telling rumors and stuff, spreading gossip and stuff, it's like shedding blood. That, that's, that's what happens here. They say they, there was lies going around. And, um, you know, I, I think that, you know, um, gossip and spreading rumors can be bloody. I've seen it ruin people. Uh, so, uh, we live in a culture of, of that. I, I, I fear that our kids are victims of this because of social media you know, the bullying that goes on. And, you know, it used to be when I was a kid, you'd go to school, kids would be mean to you, but at least home was safe. At least at home, you'd go home and you'd have mom and dad, sister and brother, and it was a safe place. Home is now where kids are still being attacked on their social media 24-7. And people are saying stuff. And, you know, I, I've, I've just heard some really sad stories of, of what happens to our kids. Um, you know, kids that are, you know, did you see this last week, sexting? Is, is becoming a huge thing among grade schoolers, grade schoolers. Um, and, um, and parents have no idea what their kids are doing with their phones. But it's, I hear these stories all the time uh, of kids that are sexting and sh- sending pictures, and then somebody gets hold of that picture and the kid thinks that only those people will see it, but then the kid takes a screenshot and then sends it to the whole school. Uh, and, then, and then that kid's ruined for the rest of his life or her life. Um, it's just, it happens. Um, we've even seen suicide locally here of our uh, junior highs and high school kids because of those very things. It's a huge problem that a lot of uh, adults don't even realize it's even a problem. But it has to do with this, the tales that are being told that are shedding blood. That's the kind of stuff that was going on in Jerusalem. Um, uh, and then it goes on in verse 10. And these have they discovered their father's nakedness. 
Now, this is a phrase that if you were with us in the book of Leviticus, um, you're, you're, uh, you're, this is not an uncommon phrase, but it's a funny thing, uncovering someone's naked, or you know, discovering a naked person. It's not like they walked in, oh my goodness, a naked person. Uh, the discovering nakedness is actually uh, usually having sex with a person. Um, and, and it's just the way that King James put, puts it, they discovered their father's nakedness or X-rated stuff is kind of what's going on here. Um, it, it's not like they accidentally stumbled into their father being naked. Um, I hope you get that on that phrase because that's a phrase all throughout Leviticus. Don't discover your daughter's nakedness. Don't discover your grandma's nakedness. Like, like it goes on and on and radical, uh, but that's what it means. Uh, you're supposed to wear clothes and not have sex with each other, especially within the family. Incestuous relationship. Oh, is this the bad part, Brett? Not even close. <laughs> there we go. So uh, I'm just getting you ready. You got to get prepped here. Um, so in verse 10, in thee have they discovered their father's nakedness, in thee have they humbled her that was set apart for pollution. Verse 11, and one hath committed abomination with his neighbor's wife, and another hath lewdly defiled his daughter-in-law, and another in thee, Jerusalem, hath humbled his sister, his father's daughter, um, uh, in thee. Have they taken gifts to shed blood? Thou hast taken usury and increase, and thou hast greedily gained of thy neighbors by extortion, and have forgotten me, saith the Lord God. This is where, you know, it, it, you can almost read Ezekiel up to this point and go, well, these people weren't that bad until this chapter. You're like, well, that's pretty bad. Yeah. It's like it's hard to get our brains around Moloch and sacrificing babies and all that. But this is stuff where, you know, a guy's sleeping with his daughter-in-law and um, they're, um, they're doing creepy, creepy stuff sexually and they're greedy and extortion and gossip and, and, and worse yet, they've forgotten God altogether. <clears throat> That's what the Lord is saying about these people. Verse 13, behold, therefore I have smitten mine hand at thy dishonest gain which thou hast made and at thy blood which hath been in the midst of thee. Can thine heart endure, or can thine hands be strong in the days that I shall deal with thee? I, the Lord, have spoken it and will do it. And I will scatter thee among the heathen and disperse thee in the countries and will consume thy filthiness out of thee. And thou shalt take thine inheritance in thyself in the sight of the heathen, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord. And this is part of that diaspora, the scattering of the Jews for 2,000 years. It's all part of this narrative of Ezekiel. Verse 17 brings us to that second uh, section. Um, uh, first section, verses 1 through 16, we've seen the cause of judgment, but now we see the means of judgment. The means. Verse 17, And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, the house of Israel is to me become dross. They are all, uh, all they are brass and tin and iron and lead in the midst of the furnace. They are even the dross of silver. Um, and it says, verse 19, Therefore thus saith the Lord God, because you are all become dross, behold, therefore I will gather you in the midst of Jerusalem. As they gather silver and brass and iron and lead and tin into the midst of the furnace and blow the fire upon it to melt it, so will I gather you in mine anger and in, in my fury and will leave you there and melt you. 
Yea, I will gather you and blow upon you the fire of my wrath, and you shall be melted in the midst thereof. As silver is melted in the midst of the furnace, so shall ye be melted in the midst thereof, and you shall know that I, the Lord, have poured out my fury upon you. Many of you are familiar with this when you see the process of purifying metals like silver. Uh, Silver and, and certain, you know, ore and stuff can have all kinds of impurities, but when you melt it, in the furnace, all those uh, things are separated out. And when you purify silver, the dross is all the junk stuff that sort of uh, starts to surface. And you can even kind of scoop it out uh, to, to make the silver really a pure silver. Um, and the other stuff is just junk and you throw it away. That's what the Lord is saying. You're not silver at all. You're just a bunch of dross. You're the junk that the judgment's going to reckon as just trash. That's pretty pretty heavy word given to the people here, but it's out of his fury He's doing this. The third section of this uh, chapter and final section is the recipients of God's judgment. Number three, verses 23 through 31. It says, And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, say unto her, Jerusalem, Thou art the land that is not cleansed nor rained upon in the day of indignation. There is a conspiracy of her prophets in the midst of thereof, like a roaring lion ravening the prey. They have devoured souls. They have taken the treasure and precious things. They have made her many widows in the midst thereof. Her priests have violated my law and have profaned mine holy things. They have put no difference between the holy and the profane. Neither have they showed difference between the unclean and the clean. And have hid their eyes from my Sabbaths, and I am profaned among them. Her princes in the midst thereof are like wolves ravening the prey, to shed blood and to destroy souls, to get dishonest gain and her prophets have daubed them with untempered mortar, seeing vanity and divining lies into them, saying, thus saith the Lord God, when the Lord hath not spoken. The people of the land have used oppression and exercised robbery and have vexed the poor and needy. Yea, they have oppressed the stranger wrongfully. And verse 30, I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Therefore, have I poured out mine indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Upon their own way have I recompensed upon their heads, saith the Lord God. The recipients of the judgment are the four people we looked at on Sunday. The the prophets, the priests, the princes, and the people. Uh, There's a nice alliteration for you right out of the Bible. Um, Those four Ps uh, are all guilty. And we saw and looked at on Sunday, verse 30 was kind of our main text, Um, that the Lord was looking for someone who was willing to stand in the gap. And sad, 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 there was no one to do so. And we looked at how we're living in the same kind of day of Ezekiel. And I wonder if the Lord is looking for those who would stand in the gap. That means to intercede on behalf of a very sinful, wretched people. There was no one. So the Lord crushes Jerusalem. And uh, we need to be those standing in the gap. If you missed that, I think it's another important part of this understanding the heart of the Lord and what we should be doing in days like we live in today. Chapter 23, hold on to your hat. We have a little story of two girls. One girl's name is Ahola, and the other girl's name is Aholiba. Ahola and Aholiba. And they're not holy whatsoever. Uh, Let's take a look, here we go. And again, these two girls are an idiom, a picture of Israel, um, specifically Jerusalem and Samaria. We'll talk about that. 
Verse one says, the word of the Lord came again unto me saying, son of man, there were two women, the daughters of one mother, and they committed whoredoms in Egypt and committed whoredoms in their youth. And there uh, were their breasts pressed and they bruised the teats of their virginity. I told you. Verse four, and the name of them was Ahola and the elder and Aholibah, her sister, and they were mine and they bear sons and daughters. Thus were their names. Samaria is Ahola and Jerusalem is Aholibah. Okay, now what's with, with this? Okay, we got this, already we're realizing these two daughters are a picture and they're called um, women that are doing, you know, whoredoms or prostituting themselves is the idea. Um, and the, the, the word Ahola, it's interesting, it means his tent or their tent. And Aholibah means my tent or my tabernacle. Um, now this is interesting because um, when we talk about the, the Samaritans, who were the Samaritans and where is Samaria? Samaria? Yeah, where is Samaria? Samaria, I don't know, Samaria. Um, Samaria is where the Samaritans lived and the Samaritans were people that were sort of half-breeds. Um, from when the Assyrians attacked the northern 10 tribes over 100 years earlier, the Assyrians, you know, crushed the northern 10 tribes, took them, and half of them were taken off, or most of them were taken off into captivity, hooks in their noses. Um, but the small remnant got sort of a mixed bunch of people, sort of half Jew, half uh, Assyrian, and they became the Samaritans. And the Jews hated the Samaritans from that day forward. So that's when Jesus, he tells the story of a good Samaritan, the Jews thought there's no such thing. Good Samaritan is an oxymoron, jumbo shrimp, you know. <laughs> Microsoft works. Uh, <laughs> um, so, so when Jesus talked about a good Samaritan, it blew them away. So in a way, if you're hearing Ezekiel, people would go, okay, one represents Samaria and she's a prostitute, whore. And they would all say, yeah, pretty much. That's what they would say. But then Aholibah is Jerusalem. And they're going, now what, we're, we're Aholibah? And, and, and this is the point. Ezekiel's gonna say, you know, um, this woman Aholah, she was a whore and a prostitute. And this woman Aholibah is a whore and a prostitute, just the same. And the Jews living in Jerusalem would have freaked out at that. So you have to understand that. It'd be God saying, you guys, are just as bad as the Samaritans, maybe worse. And, and this is the big splash of cold water Ezekiel's trying to give them, but he gets very graphic. Verse five, and Ahola played the harlot when she was mine, and she doted on her lovers and the Assyrians, her neighbors, which were clothed with blue, captains and rulers, all of them desirable young men, horsemen riding upon horses, Thus she committed her whoredoms with them, with all of them that were chosen men of Assyria, and um, with all on whom she doted, with all their idols she defiled herself, neither left she her whoredoms brought from Egypt. For in her youth they lay with her, they bruised the breasts of her virginity and poured their whoredom upon her. Wherefore I have delivered her into the hand of her lovers into the hand of the Assyrians upon whom she doted. These discovered her nakedness. They took her sons and daughters and slew her with the sword, and she became famous, or literally infamous, among women, for they had executed judgment 
upon her. So that's, that's a hola, not a great story. Um, this bruising of the breast means it was sort of like she was giving herself sexually, but they also were fondling her to the point of like a, a crazy abusive sexual relationship. Um, and they were abusing her. So this picture is about as ugly as it gets. Um, and yet now we move over in verse 11 to Aholibah. And Aholibah is a representative of who? Jerusalem. Here we go. And when her sister Aholibah saw this, she was more corrupt in her inordinate love than she, and in her whoredoms more than her sister in her whoredoms. Now pause just for a second. One of the things about sinfulness, and this is something that you got to know, and this is a hard one because uh, I'm going to say it, but I have a hunch a lot of us are not going to get it. But my sin on me does not look that bad. My sin on you, oh, it's disgusting. When I see you sitting, oh, I'm disgusted. I can't believe it. And then my sin on me, oh, it's not that bad. Hey, people make mistakes. Like, have you noticed this? This is, this is the way of the Jew at this time. They would say, those Samaritans, horrible, wretched sinners. And God's saying, uh, you guys are worse. And the Jews in Jerusalem say, no, we're not. And God's saying, no, you are worse. It's an amazing part of human nature to sort of dismiss our sins as not disgusting. By the way, when do you notice that your sins are disgusting? When you are caught. When you've been pinned down. Sometimes after the very act of sin, you realize how disgusting it really was. Um, but while you're doing it, hey, I'm not that bad. It's not that, I'm not a Samaritan. I'm not that bad. But the Lord is saying, no, you guys are worse. Jerusalem is worse than Ahola. Aholibah is way worse. Uh, that's something for you and me to remember. The reason why is because, you know, I, I marvel sometimes at the way we look at each other and our enemies even. Oh, they're horrible sinners. I can't believe it. But I wonder if we're making that most fundamental error of seeing someone else's sin on them and going, ew, but failing to see the grotesqueness of our own sin. The, the, the doing of that, when you realize how horrible your sins are, it makes you become very gracious and very merciful to others who are caught up in sin. Um, usually the person that's self-righteous, I'm glad I'm not like that person because they're a horrible sinner. Usually that's a person that has not recognized that they stink. They stink of sin just like everybody else and they're the last one to know it. Um, the old saying, the whole world stinks when you have Limburger cheese on your mustache. <laughs> it's true. The whole world stinks. Oh, they're sinners, they're hybrid. No, you're the stinky one. You're the one who stinks. Uh, takes one to know one. <laughs> you know, uh, that's the thing. But, but here God has given this wake-up call to Jerusalem saying, you're worse than Samaria. This would have been a shocker for the Jews to hear this from Ezekiel. So uh, verse 12, she, Aholibah, the Jerusalem woman, she doted upon the Assyrians, her neighbors, captains, rulers, clothed most gorgeously. Uh, horsemen riding upon horses, all of them desirable young men. Then I saw that she was defiled and they took both one way. Uh, she decided, you know, herself, just like the other sister, to go after the whoredoms, if you would, is what she's saying. Verse 14, and that she increased her whoredoms for when she saw men portrayed upon the wall, the images of the Chaldeans portrayed with vermilion or scarlet, girded with girdles upon their loins, 
Um, you mean the men were wearing girdles? Is that attractive to these women? Uh, the girdle is a belt that would hold all their weaponry and their gear. It was very masculine. It, it's a bad word, the girdle. You're, uh, you're all thinking, oh, they were working, worried about their shape? No, they were, they were carrying weapons and it made them look manly and studly. So, the, you know, she was taken with them. Um, verse 15, girded with girdles upon their loins, exceeding uh, in dyed attire upon their heads, all of them princes to look after the manner of the Babylonians of Chaldea, the land of their nativity. And as soon as she saw them her, uh, with her eyes, she doted upon them and sent messengers unto them into Chaldea. And the Babylonians came unto her into the bed of love, and they defiled her with their whoredom as she was polluted with them. And her, um, her mind, interesting way of saying it, was alienated from them. Um, this is another way of saying once she started, you know, having sexual relationship with them, she lost interest in them. Uh, this is an interesting thing about sin. Once you do the sin, you start to see how disgusting it really is. And that's where it starts right here in verse 17. She's alienated from them. So verse 18, she discovered her whoredoms and discovered her nakedness when my mind was alienated from her, like as my mind was alienated from her sister. Yet she multiplied her whoredoms in calling to remembrance the days of her youth, wherein she had played the harlot for the land of Egypt. For she doted upon their paramours, whose flesh is as the flesh of asses, whose issue is like the issue of horses. Thus thou calledst to remembrance the lewdness of thy youth in bruising of thy teats by the Egyptians for the paps of thy youth. Whew. Now, if you look around, anybody with a red face, it's because they have an NIV version. <laughs> um, but I have to say, the NIV makes it a little clearer. I'll read verse 20 in the NIV. It says, she lusted after her lovers whose genitals were like those of donkeys and whose emission was like that of horses. Like, you say, Brett, is this the Bible? Uh, I didn't color the Sunday school picture when I was a kid. Uh, this, this wasn't in Sunday school, no, and a good thing too. Um, this, this is a chapter, you say, Brett, why does the Bible do this? Like, why, why, what's the point? Um, well, remember, this book is not trivia. This book isn't, you know, 1,111,111 times 1 million, it's not that. This book has stuff that actually is life and death, heaven and hell. And this is, is God revealing to the people just how horrible um, the mindset of Jerusalem had become. And, and the reason I read that NIV is not for us to have a good laugh. The reason I read the NIV version of that is to realize, wow, God is using strong imagery and language to show just the insane rebellion and the grotesqueness of sin. By the way, whenever you read stuff that's really gross or violent in the Bible, usually it's linked to the topic of sin. Sin destroys, sin is ugly, sin stinks, sin wounds and hurts, sin brings about sorrow, sin brings about sadness. Here's God, a loving God saying, don't do this stuff. Oh, I wanna do this stuff, it looks like fun. Don't do it, it stinks, it's horrible. But the Jews just for centuries now have just blown off God altogether. And now God's using this strong language saying, look at yourselves, look what you're into, look what you're doing. It's almost like here, Ezekiel the prophet, I wonder if him saying this stuff would have shocked the people like, 
what? Prophet Ezekiel, you're saying, what? Did we hear you right? What you said that this woman who represents Jerusalem, what she was into? Yep. Um, and this was meant to, to be the wake-up call, um, but sadly, we know to no avail. Well, the lewdness, verse 21, um, of her youth, uh, that, was, that was the... Uh, now, by the way, some of this has to do with the story. If, if, you're, if you know the story that we went through in uh, Jeremiah, some of the stuff you know what we're talking about. Remember when they went to the Egyptians for help? Even Isaiah talked about this. Or they were trying to buddy up with the Babylonians and they became a vassal state. And, you know, like this is all talking about how they were playing the game with these other nations, fornicating themselves and getting into their idolatry and all this other stuff. And, and, and so even though this is a very sexual, uh, horrific sort of example, you do recognize this is the story of what they did. And, and you could take some interesting parallels if you really wanted to, uh, that are kind of actually strikingly uh, exacting of what they were doing, even though it's horrible imagery. Well, now verse 22, it says, Therefore, O Aholibah, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will raise up thy lovers against thee, from whom thy mind is alienated, and I will bring them against thee on every side. The Babylonians and the Chaldeans, Pekod and Shoah, Koah, and all the Syrians with them, all the, uh, of them desirable young men, captains and rulers, great lords and renowned, all of them riding upon horses, and they shall come against thee with chariots, wagons, wheels, and with an assembly of people, which shall set against thee a, a buckler and shield, helmet round about, and I will set judgment before them, and they shall judge thee according to their judgments. And I will set my jealousy against thee, and they shall deal furiously with thee, they shall take away thy nose and thy ears, and thy remnant shall fall by the sword. Uh, yeah, that's what it sounds like. They're gonna chop off your noses and your ears, and they did do that, by the way. Um, uh, they will, uh, your remnant shall fall by the sword. They shall take thy sons and thy daughters, and thy residue shall be devoured by fire. They shall also strip thee out of thy clothes and take away their, thy fair jewels. Thus will I make thy lewdness to cease from thee, and thy whoredom brought thee from the land of Egypt, so that thou shalt not lift up thine eyes unto them, nor remember Egypt any more. For thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will deliver thee in the land, in, into the hand of them whom thou hatest, into the hand of them whom thy mind is alienated, and they shall deal with thee hatefully, and shall take away all thy labor, and shall leave thee naked and bare, and nakedness of thy whoredoms shall be discovered, both thy lewdness and thy whoredoms. I will do these things unto thee, because thou hast gone a-whoring after the heathen, and because thou art polluted with their idols. Thou hast walked in the way of thy sister, therefore will I give her cup unto thine hand. Bible speaks of the cup is what you got coming. And the same cup that, you know, Ahola had, Aholibah is going to get. It's just, but it's interesting, isn't it, that, that the, the cup that's talked about here makes me think of the Garden of Gethsemane. Because when Jesus said, oh, Lord, if it be possible, let not this cup, you know, he was trying to say, I, I don't want to drink of this cup. But it's what was coming to him. But why was that cup coming to him? Well, it, it's an amazing picture because here Aholibah and Ahola drink the cup, but Jesus drinks the cup and it's the same cup, the cup of sinfulness and suffering, but Jesus never sinned. 
So why did he drink the cup? Because our sins. When Jesus drank of the cup of suffering, it was because of us. And he did it in our place. Like Ahola and Aholibah drank the cup, and so they got crushed. Jesus drinks the cup so that we don't have to. Um, I love that cup. The cup of suffering of Christ is why we're saved. That's what makes we think of verse 31. Verse 32, thus saith the Lord God, shalt thou drink of thy sister's cup deep and large? Thou shalt be laughed to scorn and had in derision, it containeth much. Thou shalt be filled with drunkenness and sorrow with the cup of astonishment and desolation with the cup of thy sister Samaria. Thou shalt even drink it and uh, suck it out and thou shalt break the shards thereof and pluck off thine own breasts for I have spoken it, saith the Lord God. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, because thou hast forgotten me and cast me behind thy back, therefore bear thou thy lewdness and thy whoredoms. The Lord said, moreover unto me, son of man, wilt thou judge Ahola and Aholibah? Yea, declare unto them their abominations. They have committed adultery and blood is in their hands. And with their idols have they committed adultery and have also caused their, soul, their sons, whom they bear unto me, to pass for them through the fire to devour them. Moreover, this they have done unto me. They have defiled my sanctuary the same day and have profaned my Sabbaths. For when they had slain their children to their idols, then they came the same day into my sanctuary to profane it. And lo, thus have they done in the midst of mine house. Wow. This is where he says one, one minute they're sacrificing their children on Moloch, the next minute they're going in into the temple and they're defiling it. God says, I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna stand by and let that happen. Again, if you think abortion is different than this, you need to look at what we're doing. It's the same, only worse because we're doing it by the millions and millions and millions. And I think that we're gonna have to answer for that apart from salvation through the grace of Jesus Christ. That's the only salvation we have uh, is through Jesus. Well, verse 40, and furthermore, that you have sent for men to come from far unto whom a messenger was sent, and lo, they came for whom thou didst wash thyself, painted thy eyes, decked thyself with ornaments, um, and statest upon a stately bed and a table prepared before it, whereupon thou hast set mine incense and mine oil, and a voice of a multitude being at ease was with her. And with the men of the common sort were brought Sabaeans from the wilderness, which put bracelets upon their hands and beautiful crowns upon their heads. Then I said unto her that was old in adulteries, will they now commit whoredoms with her? Then she with them? Yet they went in unto her as they went in unto a woman that played the harlot, and so they they in unto Ahola and unto Aholibah, the lewd women. And the righteous men, they shall judge them after the manner of adulteresses and after the manner of women that shed blood because they are adulteresses and blood is in their hands. For thus saith the Lord God, I will bring up a, a company upon them and will give them to be removed that spo and spoiled. And the company shall stone them with stones and dispatch them with their swords, and they shall slay their sons and their daughters and burn up their houses with fire. Thus will I cause lewdness to cease out of the land that all women 
may be taught not to do after your lewdness, and they shall recompense your lewdness upon you, and you shall bear their sins of their idols, and you shall know that I am the Lord God. Well, Brett, that's just a fine how to do. I came to a Wednesday night, and what a horrible chapter. Thanks a lot. Well, it's the Bible, folks. Um, and again, you have to say, well, the Lord is wanting us to get the message that, um, whew, this is horrible. Horrible, ugly, brutal imagery. Um, you say, that's just kind of depressing. But you got to always remember the redemptive part. There in John chapter 4, here's where I find the redemption. There in John chapter 4, Jesus turns to his disciples and says, hey, you guys, we must needs go through where? Samaria. And Jesus went to Samaria and found a woman at the well of Samaria. Now, if you don't know your Bible, if you've not really studied that, um, most scholars believe that woman to be a prostitute. And there's a couple bits of evidence. Uh, we know she was at least an adulterer and maybe what we might call a floozy. Part of us believe she was an adulteress because of the time of day she was at the well. The Bible specifically says what time, and in those days, they had very specific social times for the wealthy people to go, for the trashy people, the homeless, and a time for the prostitutes to go to the well. And it just so happens this woman is at the well at the time where the lowest of the low go there. So Jesus goes to the well at that time. Isn't that something? And Jesus goes and tells this woman, hey, woman, give me something to drink. Oh, well, how is it that you, being a Jew, she knew that Jews hated Samaritans. How, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask of me, a woman of Samaria, to give you something to drink? Well, Jesus said, if you knew who was asking for you to give a drink, you'd be wanting the drink, the water that he gives, because he gives a, a drink that is a, a drink of, uh, that springs everlasting life. Well, you don't have anything to draw out of the well. How are you going to give me something to drink? And Jesus said, I am that drink. I am that water of life. I am the one that's going to give you the water that is gushing forth out of your belly, torrents of living water. Jesus talked about this over and over again in his ministry. And she said, I want that. And she perceived that he was a prophet at that point. And when did she really perceive he was a prophet? Well, it was when Jesus said, go and, go and tell your husband, and then uh, we'll talk further. Oh, I have no husband. And Jesus said, oh, you've spoken well that you have no husband, because you actually have five husbands, and the one you're with right now is not your husband. So if you didn't think she was kind of a, an adulteress before, now you kind of know, wow, she's, in those days, having five husbands and the one you're living with right now, well, according to the Bible, that's adulterous type behavior. So there's an adulterous woman of Samaria. Let's just call her Ahobah. <laughs> because that's, that's the picture. The Jews would have hated her because she was a Samaritan and a prostitute. They would have hated her. But Jesus, the disciples were freaked out. Why is Jesus going to Samaria to talk to this woman at the well? Ah! They were totally freaked out by this. But Jesus talks to her and she says, I perceive thou art a prophet. But I love it because she came to that well that day to get water from a well. But by the end of the story, it says she left her water pots. The thing that she came for, she could care less about at that point, after having met Jesus, the Messiah. Because remember, she finally perceives that he's the one. She says, there's one that's going to come that's supposed to be the Messiah. And Jesus said, I that speaketh unto thee am he. She left her water pots, goes back into town. 
and tells the whole town. Now this cracks me up. She goes in there announcing, hey, you guys, I just met a man who just told me everything I've ever done. I wonder if all the men of the city are like, nope. <laughs> everything. This prostitute of Samaria, everything. He told me everything. And the whole town was gonna come out and see Jesus, the Messiah. It's an amazing story that Jesus would go to Samaria to begin with. But see, that's the redemptive part. I hope that the ugliness of sin comes out of this study tonight. The stench of sin. Because you know what? Did you see the last part of this chapter where they would come and gussy themselves up, painting their faces and having fancy robes and clothes? And that's part of this chapter, the scarlet threads that they were wearing. And there was a beautification of ugliness. That's what we do with sin today. We love to take our sin and package it in Hollywood. We love to take our sin and package it up in popularity or an Instagram account that looks really cool. And you know, you, you know we, we, we package sin to look cool. That's what they were doing. But the Lord is saying, no, it's ugly and it stinks. And, and your sin separates me from you. And so God is showing the Jews how horrifying their sin really is. Chapter 23 is about as potent as it gets when it comes to God saying, you wanna know what your sin is? Just look at a hola and a holiba, chapter 23 of Ezekiel, and you, you might wanna just throw up after that chapter. But the good news is that's why Christ came to drink the cup of suffering that a holiba and a hola had to drink. We don't have to drink it, why? Because Christ drank of that cup. Christ came to Samaria, the woman at the well. Christ was the one who redeemed us back to God the Father. So even though this chapter is dark and brutal, it just once again does what the book of Galatians says. The Old Testament law, it's a schoolmaster that drives us to Jesus Christ. Chapter 23 of Ezekiel drives me to Jesus. It makes me wanna say, oh Lord, forgive me for my stinky sins wash me in your blood, save me by your grace, and take me back into the fold of the house of God. Um, I hope that, that, that if there's ever a chapter in the Bible that makes one repent of their sins, chapter 23 of Ezekiel should be that chapter. So may the Lord give us ears to hear what the Spirit would say tonight to the church in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Lord, we recognize our own humanity and sinfulness in these chapters. Um, Lord, we see that humanity has done so badly and we've sinned against you. And, and Lord, we look at the ugliness of even what we've done in our nation. As an American nation, Lord, we've become the, the chiefest of sinners. Um, the number one um, group that pushes pornography on the world. We've been the number one group of what excess is like and greed and, and treating people badly and arrogance and pride. Lord, we have sinned against you. And I pray, Lord, that we would see the ugliness of that, Lord. We know that you spent great pains to talk through Ezekiel for those people in that day, but we can't help but think that these chapters are largely to remind us of our own failure. And, and how thankful we are, Lord, that while we were yet sinners, even to the uttermost, your word says, while we were yet sinners, you died on the cross for our sins and you wash us clean. Lord, thank you for your grace and your forgiveness. Help us to be a repentant bunch. Lord, put within us a hunger and a thirst after righteousness. Lord, just to walk after your truth and to put away sinful, grotesque things. 
So help us, Lord, help us not to be self-righteous. Help us to be humbled in light of our wretchedness, humbled but also joyful knowing that you've washed us clean and you make within us a brand new creation. How thankful we are in Jesus' name, amen.